Chapter Eleven, Part Three of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of eighteen ninety six, Part Three. The scene enacted in the convention as Mr. Bryan finished speaking was indescribable. Throughout the latter part of his address, a crash of applause had followed every sentence. But now the tumult was like that of a great sea thundering against the dikes. Twenty thousand men and women went mad with an irresistible enthusiasm. This orator had met their mood to the very full. He had found magic words for the feeling which they had been unable to express. And so he had played at will upon their very heartstrings until the full tide of their emotion was let loose in one tempestuous war of passion which seemed to have no end. When order was partially restored, the substitute resolutions offered by Senator Hill were rejected with cries of derision, as were two other amendments afterwards proposed by him, and then the free silver platform was adopted by a vote of 628 to 301. Having taken this action, the delegates, exhausted by the day's exciting scenes, adjourned until the following afternoon. Overnight, the question of the candidate to be nominated was earnestly discussed. It was evident that Mr. Bryan had suddenly leaped into a prominence which made him a formidable competitor for the highest honors. Before his address, no one had thought of him as a presidential candidate. Mr. Bland of Missouri, who was popularly styled the father of free silver, possessed the largest following. But now there were many who believed that their true leader had been revealed to them in Mr. Bryan. Mr. Bland was able and experienced but he lacked the fire and the genius for command which the young Nebraskan had so strikingly exhibited. Hence, when the convention reassembled and proceeded to the selection of a candidate, although the first ballot showed Mr. Bland to have received 235 votes, Mr. Bryan came next with 119, the number necessary to a choice being 502. Thirteen other gentlemen, note 20, page 503, received scattering votes. On the second and third ballots, both Mr. Bland's and Mr. Bryan's following was increased. But on the fourth, Mr. Bryan led with 280 to 241 for Mr. Bland. When the roll was called for the fifth time, Mr. Bryan lacked only 12 votes of a nomination, and at once 78 delegates changed their votes for other candidates to him, thereby making him the choice of the convention. Subsequently, Mr. Arthur Sewall, a wealthy shipbuilder of Maine, was nominated for the vice presidency. Note 21, page 503. The action of the Chicago Convention was received in the West with immense enthusiasm, in the South with doubtful approbation, and in the East with anger and dismay. Over the offices of some Democratic newspapers, flags were hoisted at half-mast. Many journals expressed strong disapproval. Note 22, page 503. Not a few openly avowed their purpose of supporting the Republican candidates. The Western Silvermen were described by these papers as being really populists who had stolen the name of Democrats. The gold delegates returning from the scene of their defeat set themselves to stimulate this feeling where they did not take refuge in significant silence. Are you still a Democrat? An intimate friend asked of Senator Hill. Yes. I am a Democrat still, adding after a significant pause. Very still. Naturally, the Republicans rejoiced at these evidences of Democratic dissension. 
it appeared for a few days as though a victory over Mr. Bryan might be won almost without a struggle. But very soon this view was seen to be erroneous, and Mr. McKinley's managers perceived with genuine alarm that the contest was to be one of the fiercest ever fought in American political history. For though in New England and New York Mr. Bryan was certain to lose many votes, this loss would be offset by the thousands of ballots which would be cast for him by the Silver Republicans and by the populists in the western states. On July 22nd, these two parties held conventions in St. Louis, and each of them nominated Mr. Bryan for the presidency, though the populist convention substituted the name of Mr. Thomas E. Watson of Georgia for that of Mr. Sewall as its candidate for the vice presidency. Note 23, page 504. Already a section of the Prohibition Party known as the Broad Gagers had adopted a platform favoring the free coinage of silver at the ratio of 16 to 1. It was plain, therefore, that Mr. Bryan would receive a very heavy vote from sources outside the pale of the regular democracy. Moreover, as time went on, many conservative Democrats who had earnestly opposed the silver movement were still so far affected by their sentiment of party loyalty as to prefer any Democratic candidate to a Republican. It was for the purpose of drawing the votes of these men away from Mr. Bryan that the Gold Democrats summoned a convention which met at Indianapolis. Note 24 page 505, on September 2nd, and adopting the name of National Democratic Party, nominated for the presidency, General John M. Palmer of Illinois, and for the vice presidency, General Simon B. Buckner of Kentucky. This convention, to which 41 states and three territories sent delegates, adopted a platform condemning the populist conventions of Chicago and St. Louis, urging the maintenance of the gold standard, and highly commending the fidelity, patriotism, and courage of President Cleveland in fulfilling his great public trust, in maintaining civil order and the enforcement of the laws, and in upholding the credit and honor of the nation. Note 25, page 505. The Democratic nominations were no sooner made than the whole country perceived the supreme issue of the campaign to be the silver question. Even Mr. McKinley ceased to discourse upon the tariff and addressed his visiting delegations on the one subject of the currency. The Republicans took up the cry of sound money and made that the party slogan. Active canvassing began at an unprecedentedly early date. There was no interval of rest and apathy. Mr. Bryan himself forced the fighting, and made the first aggressive move by journeying in August to New York City in order that he might receive the formal notice of his nomination in the Madison Square Garden. As he expressed it in a phrase that was much criticized at the time, he wished first to present his cause in the heart of what now seems to be the enemy's country. Note 26, page 506. His intention created a genuine panic among the Republicans. Although in their public prints they had sneered at Mr. Bryan's oratorical powers, although they had derisively dubbed him the boy orator of the Platte, and although they had absurdly described the famous peroration of his convention speech as blasphemous, they were secretly afraid lest his eloquence should produce the same effect in New York as it had in Chicago. But Mr. Bryan himself knew better. He was wise enough to understand that the conditions in Chicago could not possibly be reproduced in New York. He was aware that public expectation had been worked up to so extravagant a pitch that were he Demosthenes and Cicero in one, he must inevitably fail to satisfy it. He therefore very sensibly declined to attempt what would have been impossible. In other words, he refused to compete against himself. 
When he appeared before the immense audience in New York, he read a very carefully prepared address, well-reasoned, temperate, and persuasive, but with no attempt at eloquence whatever. His opponents at once set up a howl of derision, and even many of his own supporters were for the moment much chagrined. Nevertheless, he had acted wisely, and he had followed an excellent precedent. For Mr. Lincoln, when he first came to New York after receiving the Republican nomination in 1860, had also read his speech and had declined to trust to his gift of improvising. But the circumstances of the meeting at the Madison Square Garden were undoubtedly unfortunate for Mr. Bryan. The night was one of intense midsummer heat. The sweltering audience was kept waiting in extreme discomfort. The notification speech of Governor W. J. Stone of Missouri was inexcusably long, while Mr. Bryan himself spoke for nearly two whole hours. A feeling of relief was experienced by the Republicans when they found that their formidable adversary had at least performed no miracle of eloquence in the enemy's country. But Mr. Bryan gave them no cause to relax their efforts to defeat him. With astonishing energy, he planned and carried out four long journeys through the country, speaking at every place of importance in the doubtful states. On a single one of these progresses, he traveled more than 12,000 miles and was everywhere received by enormous gatherings and with intense enthusiasm. The funds for his campaign were slender. All the financial interests of the country were arrayed against him. His managers had no great sums to lavish in subsidizing newspapers, in circulating documents, in hiring bands, and in decorating whole cities with political banners. Mr. Bryan, in fact, fought single-handed against the party of wealth. Yet though almost alone, he made his foes strain every nerve to compass his defeat. It was estimated, note 27, page 507, that not less than five million persons heard him speak, and among them there were few who showed him anything that savored of discourtesy. Almost the only exception was found in an incident at New Haven where the students of Yale University interrupted his address with yells for McKinley and jeers for Mr. Bryan and his cause. But this was an exceptional incident, and one which only the New York Sun had the hardihood to defend. It would, indeed, have been very difficult for any fair-minded person after hearing Mr. Bryan to feel aught but a sincere personal respect for him. The tone of all his speeches was most admirable. He dealt with principles alone and not with persons. Although showered with abuse by the Republican and Gold Democratic newspapers, he never condescended to reply in kind, and for his chief political adversary he had only words of courteous consideration. Speaking in the town of Canton, Mr. McKinley's home, he said, and the sentences were very characteristic of his manliness. I am glad to meet the people of this city, the home of my distinguished opponent, and I am also glad in their presence to testify to his high character and great personal worth. I shall be satisfied if, as an individual, I may be able to stand beside him in public esteem. I tell my neighbors at home that I shall bear them no ill will if they believe that my opponent should be elected and I have so high an opinion of my opponent that I know he will say to his townsmen here that everyone should be free to make his ballot represent a free man's will, although it may result in keeping your distinguished citizen among you as a neighbor still. Very different from this was the treatment accorded Mr. Bryan by his adversaries. They could find nothing in his private life to censure but they circulated absurd and absolutely baseless stories, besides misrepresenting the whole tenor of his political teaching. They professed to believe that he had once been a strolling actor. They denounced him as an anarchist and an enemy of public order. 
Some phrases in the Democratic platform relating to the income tax decision were so garbled as to make it appear that Mr. Bryan desired to abolish or discredit the Supreme Court. Thousands of men, women, and children were led to think of him as the incarnation of riot, revolution, and ruin. Some of the bitterest of the attacks upon him were made by the organs of the gold standard democracy. Thus, after Mr. Bryan had delivered an address in Louisville, the courier-journal of that city, edited by Mr. Henry Watterson, said of him, Mr. William J. Bryan has come to Kentucky, and Kentuckians have taken his measure. He is a boy orator. He is a dishonest dodger. He is a daring adventurer. He is a political faker. He is not of the material of which the people of the United States have ever made a president, nor is he even of the material of which any party has ever before made a candidate. Popular preachers harangued their congregations on the despicable character and evil purposes of Mr. Bryan. In Brooklyn, the Reverend Cortland Myers in a sermon said of the Chicago platform, That platform was made in hell. Note 28, page 509. The Reverend Dr. C. H. Parkhurst in New York spoke of the Silver Movement as inimical to credit and as an attempt, deliberate and hot-blooded, to destroy what little of it still remains. I dare, in God's pulpit, to brand such attempts as accursed and treasonable. Note 29, page 509. Mr. Thomas Dixon, Jr. cried aloud to a New York congregation that Mr. Bryan was a mouthing, slobbering demagogue whose patriotism is all in his jawbone. Note 30, page 509. From these citations, it will be seen that the violence of language which in the populist orators had so amused the people of the East was now fully matched by the ranting of the gold men. Even some of the Catholic clergy were induced to speak in opposition to Mr. Bryan's cause, though of course they did so in terms of moderation and decorum. Governor Culberson of Texas had written to Prince Bismarck a letter asking for an expression of opinion as to the merits of bimetallism as against gold monometallism. The ex-Chancellor replied from Friedasieu, under the date of August 24, 1896, to the effect that he had always personally had a preference for bimetallism, without considering myself infallible over against experts on the subject. He added, the United States are commercially freer in their movements than any single one of the European nations, and if North America should find it compatible with its interest to take an independent step in the direction of bimetallism, I do believe it would have an appreciable influence upon the establishment of an international agreement and the cooperation of the European states. The silver orators made much of Bismarck's letter, and Archbishop Ireland of St. Paul took occasion to refer to it in a statement which he made in answer to a request from a number of prominent merchants and bankers. The Archbishop wrote, Herr von Bismarck counseled the United States to go ahead and make the experiment all alone. Yes, and some Americans quote his advice as an authority. The sly old fox would indeed be pleased to see America make the experiment and go to the bottom of the sea. Note 31, page 510. It was not, however, upon newspaper discussion or platform oratory or the influence of the clergy that the Republican managers placed their main reliance. The whole vast machinery of commerce, of business, and of finance was set in motion to create a general impression that Mr. Bryan's success would mean disaster to every section of the American people. As the month of November drew near, 
capitalists resorted to the very effective device of giving large orders to manufacturers on condition that these orders should be executed only in case of Mr. McKinley's election. In this way, notice was served upon the artisans that if they voted for Mr. Bryan, they would be voting to deprive themselves of work. Agents of some of the great insurance companies of New York and New England, which held mortgages upon western farms, intimated to the mortgagers that if Mr. McKinley were elected, the mortgages would be extended for five years at a low rate of interest. At the end of the week preceding the election, many employers of labor in paying off their workmen gave them notice that they could not return to work in the event of Mr. Bryan's success. Note 32, page 511. The city banks brought to bear upon their country correspondents such powerful pressure as they could readily exercise, and these correspondents transmitted that pressure to their depositors. In fact, the myriad influences which Mr. Hanna understood so well were all directed with astonishing effectiveness to the single end of defeating Mr. Bryan at any cost. These means were doubtless more certain in their operation than the mere use of money. Yet money, too, was spent with a profusion hitherto unknown even in American political campaigns. A member of the Republican Committee subsequently admitted that the campaign expenses of his party in 1896 amounted to not less than $25,000 a day from August 1st until the eve of the election. This money came from capitalists and businessmen in general, and even from fiduciary institutions. Note 33, page 512. Yet the result of an election so bitterly contested as was that of 1896 can scarcely have been decided by the use of money or by influences more insidious and no less discreditable. How did the cause for which Mr. Bryan so brilliantly contended commend itself to the sober judgment of intelligent Americans? In what way did the majority of these men sum up their verdict at the close of the campaign? Let us review the main contentions of the Silver Party and their endeavor to point out alike their weakness and their strength. Until 1873, either gold or silver bullion might be taken by any one to the mints of the United States to be coined into standard dollars at a ratio of 16 to 1, exactly 15.988 to 1. By 1873, however, the immense production of silver had cheapened the market value of that metal, so that the old ratio of coinage was no longer an exact one. The price of silver was continually falling and fluctuating, and hence, as early as 1870, President Grant's Secretary of the Treasury had drafted a bill to demonetize the silver dollar and to establish the single gold standard for the United States. This bill was passed by the Senate in 1871 and, two years later, in 1873, it was passed by both houses and became law. It had been before Congress for nearly three years, and it had met with scarcely any opposition. Presently, the world's annual production of gold diminished, so that the value of the gold dollar appreciated as the supply of that metal shrank in proportion to the growth of the population, thus causing what some described as a contraction of the circulating medium. This brought several results to pass. Prices, being measured in terms of gold, continually fell, while debts contracted under the other system were now payable in dollars of a greater intrinsic value than before. Presently it began to be asserted that the Act of 1873 had been passed by a conspiracy of the capitalists who had smuggled it through Congress by craft and stealth. It was spoken of as the crime of 1873, and was cited as an example of the wickedness of the financiers. 
Of course, the facts as just given show that the charge was false. In one of the later debates in the Senate, Mr. Stewart of Nevada, after violently denouncing the crime of 1873, was put to confusion by Senator Sherman, who showed by the record that Mr. Stewart had himself spoken and voted for the crime. In truth, all the senators from California, Oregon, and Nevada had supported the demonetizing act. Nevertheless, it had unquestionably worked a hardship to the debtor class throughout the country, just as did the resumption of specie payments in 1879. Note 34, page 513. Yet this hardship was in reality due to natural causes, and chiefly to a decrease in the world's gold supply. What Mr. Bryan proposed to do was to expand the currency by opening the mints once more to free silver coinage at the old ratio. He believed that this would increase the volume of money in circulation, raise prices, and perform an act of simple justice to the debtor class. That is, he believed that an act of legislation could at once effectually correct an inequitable condition which was the result of purely natural causes. That he was perfectly right in his diagnosis of the financial situation few will now deny. But that his proposed remedy was perilous in the extreme remains the opinion of the ablest students of financial problems. The dangers which it seemed to threaten finally rallied to the support of Mr. McKinley that mass of thoughtful citizens who in effect always hold the balance of political power. Mr. Bryan's definition of a debtor class was indeed too limited to be convincing. His thought was mainly of the farmers of the West who had mortgaged their lands to Eastern creditors. But the true debtor class was a much larger one than this. To it, in reality, belonged every person who had deposited his savings in a bank, or who had taken out a policy of life insurance, or who had made any small investment as a provision against illness or old age. These persons dreaded the possibility of receiving in place of their hard-earned money some form of depreciated currency and they did not draw any fine distinctions between the so-called fiat paper money of the old greenback party and the fiat silver money of the new democracy. And so, in the end, the prudence or caution or timidity of this large class turned the scale against the party of free silver. Note 35, page 514. The excitement which marked this whole extraordinary contest increased in its intensity until the very end. An imposing demonstration in New York City signalized the close of the campaign on the Saturday before Election Day. More than 150,000 voters marched up Broadway under a forest of flags and vivid decorations which covered nearly every building on that famous thoroughfare. Thousands of them were men who had never perhaps taken part in a political parade before. Lawyers, merchants, clergymen, bankers, university professors, authors— all marched shoulder to shoulder cheering lustily for sound money and, incidentally, for the Republican candidates. The demonstration had no great political significance, for New York was known to be safely Republican, yet the outpouring was one of the most picturesque as well as one of the most impressive incidents in a contest that was full of life and color. The election was unexpectedly decisive. Before midnight on November 3rd, it was known that Mr. Bryan had been defeated and that he would receive in the Electoral College only 176 votes to 271 for Mr. McKinley. He had carried all the southern states except West Virginia and had also received the votes of Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, Nebraska, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming, while California and Kentucky had each given him one electoral vote. 
but the solid opposition of the east the northwest and the middle west had overborne his loyal following in the more thinly settled mining and agricultural states note thirty six page five fifteen yet mr bryan had given the republican party a shock of extreme severity the extent of its fright may be measured by the ferocity with which its newspaper organs referred to mr bryan even after the election the following passage from the New York Tribune is sufficiently illustrative to deserve citation. The thing was conceived in iniquity and was brought forth in sin. It had its origin in a malicious conspiracy against the honor and integrity of the nation. It gained such monstrous growth as it enjoyed from an assiduous culture of the basest passions of the least worthy members of the community. It has been defeated and destroyed because right is right and God is God. Its nominal head was worthy of the cause. Nominal because the wretched rattle-pated boy, posing in vapid vanity and mouthing resounding rottenness, was not the real leader of that league of hell. He was only a puppet in the blood-imbued hands of Altgeld, the anarchist, and Debs, the revolutionist, and other desperadoes of that stripe. But he was a willing puppet, Brian was. Willing and eager. Not one of his masters was more apt than he at lies and forgeries and blasphemies and all the nameless iniquities of that campaign against the Ten Commandments. He goes down with the cause and must abide with it in the history of infamy. He had less provocation than Benedict Arnold, less intellectual force than Aaron Burr, less manliness and courage than Jefferson Davis. He was the rival of them all in deliberate wickedness and treason to the Republic. His name belongs with theirs, neither the most brilliant nor the most hateful in the list. Good riddance to it all, to conspiracy and conspirators, and to the foul menace of repudiation and anarchy against the honor and life of the Republic. Mr. Bryan himself set an example of dignity and generous feeling which his newspaper assailants might well have tried to emulate. No sooner was the result of the election a certainty than he telegraphed to his successful rival a message of cordial congratulation, to which Mr. Kinley at once replied in terms of equal courtesy and personal goodwill. Thus terminated the most eventful political struggle which the people of the United States had witnessed since that which ended in the first election of Abraham Lincoln. Looking back upon it with a true perception of its significance, one finds in it the temporary failure of a noble cause through a faulty adaptation of means to end. For the underlying issue was not that of the money question at all. The money question served only to obscure the vital question and to postpone its ultimate decision. The people of the West, and indeed the people of the whole country, were suffering from the innumerable abuses which the lawlessness of corporate wealth had brought upon them. Unwisely, they sought a remedy through an attempt to establish an unsound economic principle. The result was their defeat, and, for a time, the defeat of the cause for which they were contending. The way to deliverance was not to be opened to them through the door of the national finances. Mr. Bryan resembled a champion who rushes forth to meet a powerful antagonist, and who has armed himself with a sword of which the blade is flawed. At the very crisis of the combat, his weapon was shattered in his grasp, and the victory was given to his adversary. End of chapter 11